Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. I hope that the scriptures we have had already this morning have blessed your heart and stirred you up. We have had Psalm 119 and verse 32 in our prayer room this morning. We have read Psalm 138 with the emphasis on the second verse. We have read Psalm 56 with the emphasis on verses 4 and 10. We've had read to us Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, chapter 32, verses 44 to 47, and chapter 6, verses 20 through 25, and other scriptures have been referenced without us turning to them. But may the Lord be praised for the scriptures we've considered already this morning. Young men, thank you for reading the Word of God in our presence. It is wonderful to know that this is your wisdom. Rules and laws greater than all the nations of the earth ever had. And that is why those that were noble wanted to emigrate to Israel. That's why kings and queens wanted to come and hear from Solomon's lips the wisdom that God had given him. This is your wisdom in the sight of the nations. That is why for 400 years people wanted to immigrate to the United States of America because of the preaching of God's Word that was here, which made our courts and everything a land of liberty and the home of the brave and the free. We were a different kind of a nation because of the Word of God. It separated us from the other nations of the earth. We can be thankful that we have it. But the Word of God is also your life. And the Word of God is your righteousness. And the Word of God is for your good. We had read to us in those three passages from the book of Deuteronomy Because Scripture, even the limited Old Testament Scriptures, were sufficient to give them guidance for wisdom, for life, for good, and for righteousness. And as Brother Newell said, we have so much more than Israel ever had, especially that generation that Moses addressed. They weren't even in the land of Canaan yet. Thank you, Lord, for the Scriptures. I want to read to you, a spectacular event that took place in the history of this world where men came back from the dead and where God spoke from heaven and where a man changed in his being so that he shone like the sun. But you're not going to read about this in history books. They're going to worry about the names of the three ships that supposedly... A man named Columbus, supposedly, with ties to Portugal and Spain, supposedly came to this country, none of which has any value. You say, you don't love history. I love history. I love his story of what he's done among the nations. This is what he's done on an occasion that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke, and that we're about to consider in 2 Peter 1. I read from Matthew 17, beginning at verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light 
And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man, save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And then they did tell about this vision of seeing Jesus Christ transfigured, because Matthew wrote it, Mark wrote it, Luke wrote it, and Peter wrote it. Four times in your New Testament. This is an event worthy of being recorded. Whether it was the Santa Maria, the Nina, and the Pinta, in, re- in honor of Pinto beans, we don't know. But this we do know. And you can be sure of this. It's recorded four times in the scriptures of truth. This is certain truth. Jesus of Nazareth. Supposedly the carpenter's son took his chosen three apostles individually and separate from the rest into a high mountain and there his form and figure and visage was changed. A man changed to look like an angel. Whatever angels look like. But he was made to look glorious. His face shone and through his clothing came the power of a glorified body momentarily for the vision of Peter, James, and John. And with him appeared Moses and Elijah. Now we deny the doctrine of annihilation, which means when you die, you cease to exist. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses' pet heresy. We deny the doctrine of soul sleep, which means that when you die, you go into a state of basic annihilation called soul sleep where your soul is sleeping until the great day of resurrection. That's a pet heresy of the Seventh-day Adventists. Because we see here that there are two men that are still alive. They were not annihilated and they weren't sleeping. They were talking with the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, we believe everything the Bible says. And we don't care what any man says. And we don't care if they outnumber us six and a half billion to one. As long as I've got the Bible, the seven point, I'm old, my fig just got outdated. If I have the Bible, the other 7.1 billion can believe and say whatever they want. They can tear my body into pieces, but the Word of God is absolutely true. Moses and Elijah had not been annihilated, and they spoke intelligently because their souls were not sleeping with the Lord Jesus Christ. What an event! Brethren, 
And a cloud comes down when Peter opens his mouth impulsively and suggests that there be three tabernacles made, making Moses and Elijah equal to the Son of God. And the Lord comes down while he is still speaking, because the Lord doesn't even let him get that foolish thought completely out of his mouth, before there is a cloud hovering over them in verse 5, a very bright cloud that's going to be called the heavenly glory of God. And a voice comes out of that cloud. And the voice is such that three men who had seen Jesus calm the storms at sea and raise the dead and multiply small lunches into large feasts, for great multitudes fell down as dead. Impressive. This is an event that took place and your history book tells you about it. This is your Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father gave Him honor and glory when when majesty was bestowed upon Him. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ did not reveal Himself like this to anyone else, nor did He want it told until He was back in heaven. Then these men told their story so that Matthew, who wasn't there, could write about it. And Mark, who wasn't there, could write about it. Luke, who wasn't there, could write about it. And Peter, who was there, could write about it. 28 years ago and 29 years ago, God blessed me, and I give Him all the glory. Before my ordination to have great conviction about the subject that I'm sharing with you today and teaching to you today. I've taught it before, but I'll teach things again, just like 2 Peter chapter 1 tells me to. And I would like you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, because that's where we'll spend our minutes in this assembly. 28 years ago, Before I was ordained, and I didn't really want to be ordained because I never wanted to be a pastor. And today I don't really want to be a pastor, and tomorrow I won't really want to be one either. But if God called me to it and God wants me to do it, I'll cheerfully do it. And in my right mind, without letting my flesh speak at all, I know that it is the most glorious calling a man could have is to preach this word. And to try to communicate to you what he communicated to me in 1983 and 1984. And what he communicated to me was that the King James Bible was the more sure word of prophecy, and I had something to preach. Amen. Without a Bible that we can trust at the word level, we don't have anything to preach, so why preach? My job description is three words long. And it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, after Paul drops a few names like God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, preach the word. Well, if we don't have the word to preach, if it's in the originals, then I don't have anything. But I have something. And you have it in your laps. And may God raise up other men with the same level of conviction to love every word of the more sure word. I thank Him for that. And I praise His holy name for that. I don't have anything to tell you worth hearing except to read the Word of God distinctly and give the sense of it. And it's an inexhaustible supply of material. I am soon exhausted in every way, mentally and physically, when I try to speak my thoughts. But he He has given us thoughts in two testaments of 66 book library 
of 1,189 chapters and 31,102 verses and a larger number of words for which we're thankful. Three weeks ago, I preached to you about our Lord's genealogies. Jesus Christ has a genealogy through Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus Christ has a genealogy through Mary in Luke chapter 3. Matthew's genealogy takes him back to Abraham. Luke, the physician's genealogy, takes him back to Adam and Eve. In those sermons that I preached to you three weeks ago, we saw that in that careful genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, that there were some kings deleted. Kings of Judah, sons of David, deleted. Horrors. The Word of God. And so I explained to you that we have another contradiction in the Old Testament. Where 2 Kings 8.26 tells us that Ahaziah, one of David's sons, one of the kings of Judah, became king when he was 22 years old. And in 2 Chronicles 22 and verse 2, it says he was 42 years old when he became king. And all the wise men of earth that go to seminaries say that a fly got in the inkwell and had weak legs and couldn't lift its butt as it crawled across the page. And it changed a 22 to a 42. So bless their hearts, they've changed both passages to read 22 in their ridiculous perversions of the Bible. And along comes the King James Bible that says 22 and 42. And we found out that he was 22 years old biologically, but 42 years old in the opinion of God as the son of Omri, king of Israel. He was aligned by God with Ahab and Jezebel because his father had married their daughter. And so God did not consider him a real king or son of David because his mommy had come out of Ahab and Jezebel. And so we're told that by a contradiction in the Old Testament so that we can solve a contradiction in the New Testament. That was three weeks ago. Do you remember that? This is something that the older ones in this assembly have been taught before, but I want you children to realize it. If there's an apparent contradiction in the Bible, it's because you haven't solved it yet, but God meant it the way it is. And there's wisdom to be had in it. Just like I will or will I in Psalm 56 has wisdom in it, but the same thing can be said two ways, and more than that. As we sang a third way by using a contraction, I apostrophe LL. That was three weeks ago. Do you love the Word of God? Three kings were cut out of Jesus Christ's ancestors in Matthew chapter 1. We're told why by a contradiction in the Old Testament because they were imposters. They weren't worthy. And the Bible had told us in a third place that I will bring the transgressions of the fathers, the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Amen. Yes. This past week, I had to warn one man through the internet that was relying far too much on visions that he had had. He wrote very excited about our website, and yet he wanted to share with me some visions that had helped change his life. And I wrote him back and told him what I'm preaching to you now. This past week, I had to help another man who's in seminary, and he was shocked that his mates, 
You know he's not writing from the United States. You know that his mates in seminary, when he solicited them and questioned them, told him that they believe that God speaks to men by the Holy Spirit and moves them internally to know His will with little regard to the Word of God. And he, having been taught by others or by our website, said, that's not what I believe. And he wrote on for a number of pages of what he had told them, that is the Word of God. And if I don't know the Word of God, then I shall not know what to do. And we agree, and I told him that we agree, and I gave him a few things to think about to encourage him, including what I preach to you today. Now, this past week, I encouraged a minister in the Philippines, whom God blessed last Lord's Day, to preach from Nehemiah 8 with good results. Amen. That's the greatest preaching service in the Bible. And yet most people don't even know that it's there, or what it means, or the value of it. It tells how men ought to preach, and it tells how those that hear preaching ought to respond. So they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That's what preaching is. It's not telling stories, anecdotes, illustrations, jokes, or having testimonies by famous athletes like Tim Tebow. Preaching is reading the Word of God distinctly, giving the sense, and causing people to understand what God intended by His words. This past week, I received research from a young man, and I told you I wasn't going to ask you to turn... But holding your finger at 2 Peter 1, take a look at Hebrews 4. I received an email this past week from a young man studying aeronautical engineering in Singapore with the 17th of our one-word arguments from the Bible. The Lord has blessed us to be convicted, to appreciate the fact that Jesus and Paul argued doctrine from single words. Two by Jesus in Matthew 22, two by Jesus in the Gospel of John, two by Paul in Galatians, and two by Paul in Hebrews was our old repertoire of eight. And this young man has come up with nine more. And I'll show you the 17th, but we will not spend much time except I'm explaining to you things that I hope are stirring you up. Why I'm preaching on this subject. Have you ever met someone that says, I had a peace about doing it. God has never revealed His will by giving anyone peace about a matter. That is not how He leads. God's will is expressed in Scripture. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I just didn't feel like the Spirit was in that assembly. You know, we've had them say that about this assembly. We've had them come in and say, I had Holy Ghost goosebumps. And so it's hard for me to tell by listening to this one or listening to that one where we stand, but all we know to do is guide ourselves by God's Word. I had a good feeling. The man that trusts in his feeling is a fool. Your heart is the most deceitful thing that you'll ever meet, including the devil. And so we want to be thankful for God's Word and to think that seminarians are talking about being led, led by the Lord. What do they mean? The Lord leads us by His Word. And if you ever see, hear, or think, or feel anything that's contrary to His Word, you can take your thoughts and feelings and flush them. That's right. Because this is the, the 
inspired word of God that is able to make the man of God perfect, partly furnished, thoroughly furnished unto some, not some good works, all good works. You don't need a ministerial manual and you don't need seminary training and you don't need to waste your time in two dead languages. You need to spend your time in this book. Lord, help us and raise up other men who love this book and every word in it. I want to share with you what he sent for number 17. Now, you might not appreciate this at first pass. Hebrews 4, 5. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. There is a one-word argument in Hebrews 4, 5. The Apostle Paul has taken five verses out of the Old Testament from Psalm 95. He quoted them in their entirety in chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. While I'm there, let me mention something so I don't have to turn here again. Notice verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, the Scripture is so much the work of the Holy Ghost that when you quote a passage of the Scripture, you can say, God said. You can say, the Holy Ghost said. Because it was David that wrote these words, but the last verse that we have to deal with in Second Peter chapter 1 is Second Peter 1.21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. So that when we read anything in Scripture, we can say, the Holy Ghost saith. Because this is what the Holy Spirit thinks about every subject, and He wrote it down for you so that you couldn't be waylaid by Benny Hinn blowing on his choir and having them fall down when the cue card held up in the back says, fall down. And all the people on, in TV land believe that Benny Hinn is representing God the Holy Spirit. You can know better because you have 31,102 capsule statements called Bible verses written by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost saith. David's cut out of the equation because there's one author and about 40 writers. Hebrews 4, 5. And in this place again, these are five verses out of Psalm 95. They're quoted in Hebrews 3, 7, through 11, just like from Psalm 95. Then Paul begins reasoning from Psalm 95. And I don't, I, I don't want to preach this, so let me just tell you in brief. The argument in verse 5 is from the word if. And the word if is pulled out of that five-verse passage from Psalm 95 and stuck with some other words removed from it in Psalm 95 to create this little tiny summary of the whole passage that he uses in verse 5. If they shall enter into my rest. And the apostle argues from that this way in verse 6. Seeing, therefore, it remaineth that some must enter therein. You say, I don't see it. Verse 6 is drawing a conclusion from verse 5. Verse 5 says something that says 
there are people that are able and going to enter in to God's rest. It's in the word if. The word if allows the possibility of some entering in. Do you know what every other Bible version says? They shall not enter into my rest. For Romans 4, for Hebrews 4, 5. They shall not enter into my rest. Oh, I love the Word of God. Amen. I love the Word of God. If they prayed in Acts and said, by the name of thy holy child, Jesus, is it okay to call Jesus God's holy child? Absolutely. If God calls gay people sodomites and dogs, is it okay in the right place, being a wise man, to call so-called homosexuals dogs? Absolutely. Every word of God is precious. When God said, Thou shalt not eat of the tree, and the devil, thou shalt surely die. The devil said, Thou shalt not surely die. What should we do with the little word not, though it came from the most intelligent of God's creatures? Blow it out. Right. There's much more that can be said from Hebrews 4. I just want to tell you why I'm preaching this to you, and I believe that all of this is serving your best interests and mine to delight in every word of God. Amen. And for us to pray and for us to encourage each other, for God to raise up men who love every word of God. Right. 17. Jesus proved that there was a resurrection of the dead in Matthew 22 by looking at the Sadducees who deny that there was a resurrection of the dead and who deny that there's any spirit of man. He's just a physical being. And they came to mock him and his resurrection from the dead. And they described the woman who was married to a man who died, and then she married another man and another man until she had married seven men. And they asked Jesus in their hypocrisy and heresy, in heaven, whose wife will she be? And Jesus said, you're so ignorant of the scriptures, you don't even know that there isn't marriage in heaven. There's neither male nor female, but we're all like angels. Idiots. The Bible word is fool. Then he said, in order to give you something to think about, why did God say to Moses, I am the God of Abraham? If there's no resurrection, and if there's no human spirit, why 400 years later did God say to Moses, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, Abraham is alive and doing well right now, and you Sadducees are heretics and you're wrong. That's in Matthew 22. Notice his old argument turned on the word am. Paul's argument right here in Hebrews 4, verses 5 and 6, turns on the word if. And I want to remind you that the word am, and I'm doing this because it must be embedded in your heads, the word am is italicized in your King James Bibles, which which means it was interpolated by the translators for the proper verb tense. Praise God, and I love His Word. Second Peter chapter 1. This past week, we deployed our revised website with the intent to spread God's truth as far as He will bless the effort. 
And it is a website committed to every word of God. It doesn't have a picture of you, and it doesn't have a picture of me, and it certainly doesn't have a picture of our building. It doesn't tell you about a fried chicken fish fry where we're going to have fried chicken and do some fish. It doesn't tell us about low country boils held on the green property. It just gives the word of God. Amen. And there are those among us who wish that when we were younger, somebody had put a mouse in our hands and we could have seen a website that so glorified the words of the Lord. Because right. it would have fed hungry souls that wanted to grasp and take in as much as we possibly could. But in God's infinite wisdom, He chose us for now. Second Peter chapter 1, I read to you verses 16 through 21. I hope that you paid attention to what I wrote you yesterday for your preparation for today's assemblies. In verses 1 through 4 of this chapter is Peter's introduction. In verses 5 through 11 is the assurance of election and salvation. In verses 12 through 15 is his commitment to continually repeat himself about important matters necessary for them. Verses 16 through 18 are a description of what we just read in Matthew 17 about our Lord's transfiguration. And then verses 19 through 21 tell us about the Bible. I read these last two sections, verses 16 through 21. Peter writes these words. The Holy Ghost saith, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lord, for these verses. Very quickly, beginning at verse 16, the apostle and his fellow apostles did not follow cunningly devised fables. I recently sent you a clip of Jesse Duplantis which was a cunningly devised fable of him going to heaven and joking around with God and Jesus Christ and other people there and seeing little babies come out of the breath of God so that he could comfort all the ladies in his church that every baby that dies and every baby that is miscarried automatically goes to heaven. And on and and on he went and he, he elaborated in great detail about God's little finger twitching. And every 
time his little finger would twitch, every time his little finger would twitch, angels would be flung against the wall. <laughs> That's a cunningly devised fable. The Catholics have had such fables for 1,500 years. They've got so-called statues of Mary that drip breast milk, that cry tears, and blah, blah, blah. And the pagans have always had superstitious stories cunningly devised to keep their subjects in submission to their man-made religion. The apostles were not so. The apostles were not making something up. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we've made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles had a message that was earth-shaking. And that is this. And thanks be to God in His timing of all things, it was only a few months ago when I preached to you against the heresy of preterism. The apostles preached that Jesus Christ is physically and visibly returning to this planet. When He returns... He is going to come in flaming fire taking vengeance on all His enemies and with His mighty angels. He is going to burn up this entire earth as Second Peter chapter 3 describes. There is going to be the great day of judgment. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. These are stupendous events. And for fishermen from Galilee to be preaching them is hilarious. It's called the foolishness of preaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 unless... These men have something at their disposal to confirm their testimony. What was at their disposal was mighty signs and wonders that the world had never seen before. These men could raise the dead, heal all manner of sickness, cast out devils. The Apostle Peter, if you could get a sick relative in his shadow, would be healed, according to the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul could send out handkerchiefs, and if you touched one, you'd be healed. That is power. They could raise Peter raise the dead. Remember, Tabitha, arise. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. Do you know most people want fables today? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says this. For the time will come when they will no longer be able to sit for 100 minutes at a time in the church of Greenville. But they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. For they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned into fables. Second right. Timothy 4, 3 and 4. I corrupted it a little bit to make it applicable to you. Right. The time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear preaching. They want to be entertained. They want a praise band. They want stories. They want illustrations. You don't want stories or illustrations from me that pleases the flesh, that allows you to go out of here without any real conviction from God's holy word. Preaching is to take the Word of God and say, It is written. The Holy Ghost saith. And again. Paul, when he writes, would say, And again. Meaning, another quotation. And again. Another quotation. And again. And. As he connects scriptures and preaches God's Word, even in his writing, and his preaching is described to us and illustrated to us in the book of Acts, where he would reason in the scriptures when he preached. Men have turned today to fables. Do you know the crowd that sat there and lapped up? What Jesse Duplantis gave them is a shame to Christianity today. They've turned away from the truth. They don't want to hear doctrinal teaching. They want to be entertained with fables and entertainment. Do you remember the church in Texas that recently had to move their services outdoors because Tim Tebow was coming? Why in the world would you want to listen to a man preach who can't even really play football? 
Help me. Because he's good looking. Thank you for being honest. Because he's cool. Thank you for being honest. Because everyone else was going. Thank you for being honest. Tim Tebow wasn't going to preach the Bible to them. He was going to tell stories. And they were all going to feel warm and fuzzy that they got to be with an NFL backup, backup quarterback. You say you're not very nice to Tim Tebow. I'm just telling the facts. Right. That's why the Denver Broncos got rid of him, so they could have a real quarterback who doesn't fear God. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we've made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was quite a feat for fishermen from Galilee to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not only was Jesus Christ a virgin-born Son of God, not only was He buried by the Romans after they crucified Him, but He rose from the dead the third day. He ascended into heaven. He sat down at God's right hand, and He's coming again. And when He comes again, there's going to be a judgment of every single man that's ever lived. He's going to give us a new heaven and a new earth, and He's going to burn up this whole place. And He's going to resurrect all the dead bodies from the grave. Now that's a lot to believe. And so here the Apostle Peter is saying, We preached the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you of something. There's two things that I want to add to my record of what I've told you about the second coming of Christ. And if you go read 1 Peter, you're going to find several references by Peter to the second coming of Jesus Christ in his first epistle. You're going to find that the subject at hand right here is standing before God in the great day of judgment and not falling, but having an entrance ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of heaven in verse 11. That's the context. And chapter 3 is the one about the heavens and the earth melting with fervent heat. We're in the middle of Peter's discussion in order to prove the second coming of Christ against those scoffers that would say, where is the promise of His coming? Since the foundation of the world, everything has continued the same. And so he adds two sources of credibility to his message about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Jesus of Nazareth is no longer what He was like when He was on earth. We saw what He was like in the presence of God when God spoke to Him. We saw it with our eyes and we heard it with our ears. We are eyewitnesses and we are earwitnesses of the majesty of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that what we tell you about the power of His coming is not far-fetched at all by what we saw of Him in the Holy Mount. For He received from God the Father honor and glory. Now, he received that honor and glory permanently when he ascended into heaven. He received it temporarily on the Mount of Transfiguration. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, that's out of the cloud, that is from heaven, that's Jehovah speaking about his son Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That voice put the apostles on the deck as dead. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the Holy Mount. The Apostle Peter is mentioning all the things that we would want to know about a witness that could testify of the glory and majesty and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there with Jesus. We were with Him. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We heard the voice from heaven. So that this Jesus of Nazareth has all the resident power and glory and honor and majesty from God necessary to fit the bill of the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we apostles have preached unto you. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. 
Better than being eyewitnesses, ear witnesses, and being with Jesus in the mount and seeing and hearing everything I described. And as Matthew, Mark, and Luke described, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Do you know how many charismatic and Pentecostal churches this day have men in, well, they don't use pulpits much anymore, but have men so-called preaching and telling them dreams and visions? When the Bible is more sure than a real vision, and none of them had real visions, at least from God. Unbelievable. Our whole Christian world is turning away from sound doctrine to fables. Sound doctrine in this place is this. The Bible, the word if in Hebrews 4, 5, is better than an apostle being with two other apostles to make a total of three on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus transfigured and God speaking from heaven. The book you hold in your hands is better. You don't need to be in the Mount of Transfiguration. You need to sit down in your comfort, not too comfortable chair. Maybe you need to walk in your house and read the Word of God or listen to Alexander Scorby read it to you and then hit pause as you think upon the Word of God. This is more sure. We have also, not only do I have that event to corroborate the fact that Jesus Christ has the power and glory that we've been describing to you about His second coming, but we have another evidence, the more sure word of prophecy, which is the Bible. How do we know it's the Bible? Because it just goes on to describe the Bible. Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the, help me out with the next word, it's a long one, I can't pronounce it, Scripture. The subject at hand is Scripture. The more sure word is Scripture. We have also a more sure word. It's called the Scripture in verse 20. And we're told about it. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In verse 21, it's the written down word of God. And if you're saying, but it says they spake it, well, that's why you read Jeremiah 36 last night. How did the book of Jeremiah get put together? God gave the words to Jeremiah. Jeremiah spoke the words and did Baruch faithfully write with ink on paper. Yeah, okay. That's the doctrine of inspiration. You don't need to go to seminary to learn about inspiration. If you go to seminary to learn about inspiration, you're probably going to get about six six credits worth of teaching on inspiration. And by the time you get done, you're going to be more confused than when you got there as an 18-year-old believer. If you want to learn about inspiration, then read the middle verse of Jeremiah chapter 36 where it says, He spoke and I wrote down with ink on paper. Okay, that's deep. But you know the Bible was written for His little babes. And I want to be His babe. I want to be like Solomon that says, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. So give thy servant an understanding heart. We all want that attitude toward the Word. We're nothing. We're nothing. But we will sound like something when we read God's Word because we're never going to apologize for it, nor are we ever going to whisper what it declares. We're going to read in the book and the law of God distinctly and give the sense of those words. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. I bless the God of heaven for 28, 29 years ago, showing me this and just filling me with its power and glory and thankfulness for our Bibles. I'd had the Bible my whole life, but never appreciated its every word like I did in those days that were upon me. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. So what should we do with this more sure word? 
We should take heed to it. How do we take heed to it? We read it carefully. We read it meditatively. We ask God to help us read it. We say and and pray with Psalm 119, verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. We, We listen to preaching carefully so that we can understand the readings of God's Word. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. We live in this dark world. They're given over to darkness and ignorance. The world doesn't have a clue about any subject of any importance. You say, but they invented the motorcycle. Oh, how important is that? And all they're going to do is cost you a lot in insurance and probably leave you in the hospital if you make it past the morgue. What do you want to talk about technology for? That's, that is valued men nothing. Right. Yes, we have more comfortable and luxurious lives, and I'm thankful for those things. However, those things have led men to turn their backs on the God of heaven. Right. It has not helped men worship God more. I'm going to tell you something. Hunger and not knowing where your next meal is going to come from and thinking that you could die at any time, that's going to make you a great worshiper of God like it did David in Psalm 56. Then you will feast upon every word of promise in the word of God. We live in a dark place. They think that we came from a big bang. They think that we came from monkeys. You know, they want to get rid of the Creator. We live in a dark place, and we have a lamp for our feet and a light for our pathway right now. It's the Word of God. For we have also a more sure word of prophecy. We've got something better than being on the Mount of Transfiguration. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. We have a flashlight to get us through this dark place. This world is not our home. We are strangers, meaning we don't belong. No, not yet. It's the next word, Frank, and you're very right. It's the next word. We're strangers. We don't belong here. We're aliens. Because our home is in heaven. Our address is in heaven. We're strangers here. We're pilgrims, meaning that we're on a journey through this world. We're strangers and pilgrims. But we've got a flashlight to lead us. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. Until the day dawn. There's a... You mean till tomorrow? No. Until the gospel light burst forth on these pe- people that Peter was writing? No, because they were already established in the present truth. Right. What day is going to dawn, brethren? Is the sun going to come up in a different way than we've ever seen it before? Mm-hmm. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Until the day dawn, he has left us a flashlight. As soon as his day dawns, all ignorance is going to run away out of your brain, mind, heart. You will know perfectly everything that God wants you to know. We will be joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. For right now we have a flashlight, and what a wonderful flashlight it is. It is more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven and being eyewitnesses of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a day star arise in your hearts. The first, the star that comes up in the morning and lets you know that morning's about to come, a precursor of the sun itself, is going to burst up in our hearts because the Bible tells us when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, not only is there going to be a new day, but at that same time, we are going to admire him. According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints. The precursor of heaven's eternal day is going to rise in our hearts while Jesus Christ splits this atmosphere wide open. But how do you believe that from a fisherman? Because the fisherman saw the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fisherman who saw the majesty said, the scriptures are even better. So everything they tell you about that great event is true. Knowing this first, 
that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. None of those things that you can read about the second coming of Christ or any other subject in the Bible originated from an individual man, nor is it to be interpreted apart from the rest of Scripture. When it says private interpretation, the word private means separate. You're alone. You're not with other people. Public is with a, with a mob, with a crowd. To be private is to be separate, to be alone, to be individual, to be different, to be special, to be unique. But there's the first rule of Bible study is that there is no statement in Scripture, no prophecy of the future, no declaration from God's mouth recorded there that is to be understood individually, separate, or apart from the rest. Because the whole Bible was put together by one author, the Holy Ghost, mentioned in verse 21, who moved the holy men of God as they put this book together. Attorneys will say in court that if you don't have it in writing, it's worthless. Right. It means nothing. Who cares if you have some hearsay? When something's in writing, it is weighty and powerful. God wrote to you. Amen. To you. God wrote to you. And the way God wrote to you is that he used about 40 stenographers to take the words of God and append them down over 1,500 years. And so that we have one cohesive whole of 66-book library written by about 40 different men, moved by the Holy Ghost, that reveals God's will to us, and it is more sure than if we had been with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. This right. book has the answer to every dilemma, every question, every need of your heart, mind, and soul. It can tell you about the bottle that God has in heaven that you would not know. You can look at a rose all day long, and you can marvel at the hummingbird, but it's not going to tell you that God has a bottle with your tears in it. Right. And every verse of this Bible, including Hebrews 4 or 5, that has an if in it, I want you to rejoice in it. But brethren, we don't leave this subject even for our break without thinking, Lord... When thou wilt enlarge my heart towards your word, then I will run in the way of your commandments. Right. Let's rejoice today in God's word. Let's be so thankful that we have this library from our Abba Father in heaven who's told us everything we need to know, and it's more sure than if he appeared to us the most stupendous vision in the Bible is there in Matthew 17 and referred to by Peter in 2 Peter 1, but the Bible is better. It's more sure. And we'll consider how it's more sure and on what subjects it's more sure when we come together after our break. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.